Morning. Morning. Morning to those of you watching online as well. We are in the second uh, uh, installment, second message in the series introduced by that video, Questions of Faith. What is this series? If you were not here last Sunday, it's really an opportunity to take some weeks now through the end of May to ask some questions and maybe try to get at some answers to some questions that people ask. You might say that some of these questions are, are sort of age old about the Christian faith, not just questions that maybe non-church-going people have about the Christian faith. Is it true? Is it real? Does it hold water? But questions that even we have, right? Those of us maybe who call ourselves Christians. We have questions too, and it's an opportunity for us as we seek to want to have a deeper faith and also be better communicators of the faith to others around us. That's the purpose. Last week we looked at a message that talked about, asked this question, is the Bible the word of God or does it contain the words of God? Pretty fundamental question. If we're going to talk about faith in the world, you know, if without the Bible, what would we have? How could we anchor any of our beliefs without the scripture? So that's a pretty important question to get some handle on because all of the authority comes uh, from the scriptures. The teaching, we wouldn't know anything about the death and resurrection of Jesus were it not for the Bible. The question this morning, I would say, is right up there uh, with that question. It's about human suffering. Right? All of the suffering, you might even say the evil that happens in the world, even in our lives. The question of human suffering in the world is perhaps the greatest question, probably even more than the Bible question, that's asked by people concerning a belief in God. And as I said, this happens not only with people outside the church, but inside the church. Now, a great deal of the answer, or some of the answer, is doesn't need, uh, we can explain it. In other words, we can look at the suffering in the world, grand newspaper, you know, front page of the paper, all the way down to our own lives or people that we know or the people in our lives. And we can explain it because a lot of the human suffering is because of our own choices, right? We, are the, we make a lot of bad choices. We do a lot of uh, stupid things and people do a lot of stupid things and people make bad choices. And a lot of the suffering in the world, if you think about it, we have to own it. Or it's, it really, we, we know where it comes from. Some of suffering not only comes from choices, it comes from loss, right? I mean, that's a part of life. Of course, losing a loved one, losing a parent, losing a child, oh my goodness, or, uh, all, or losing even things that are important to you starts with people, but we all experience loss, okay? And loss is a kind of suffering. It's part of life, right? We understand that to the degree that we understand that all people and, you know, all of us are we going to face death in this life? But this question is mostly focused on the inexplicable, unexplainable suffering, the disease that happens to people of all kinds, natural disasters that happen all the time, and even, you might say, you know, uh, a tragic, senseless events that seem, right, from the best that we know, seem so random, so... so um, uh, un, un, unexplainable that happened to people all the time. So that's what we're talking about. That kind of suffering. Why would God allow this kind of suffering? Now this is how it's often framed. If God allows suffering and evil and doesn't stop it, he might be good, but he is perhaps not powerful. Right? He can, he's a good God, but he doesn't have the power. Or... If he is all-powerful and he chooses not to stop it, he must not be good, 
Okay, so that's how it's often framed. People don't necessarily use those sentences, but this is the dilemma. I would say to you, I'm going to start with an assumption, that the Bible says, okay, that God is both good at his core, goodness. It's not something he does. He's good at his core, and he is, according to the Bible, unquestionably all-powerful. He is both of those things. So, the question, why would a loving God allow so much suffering, one who is good and is all-powerful. Romans chapter 8, time we have, look at some verses beginning with the 18th verse. Romans 8, 18, just through 21, follow along as I read these words. Apostle Paul, great church at Rome. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. Why would God allow so much suffering? A couple things in this passage, and we'll read a few more verses before we get done. First one is this. In our suffering, we discover life's true meaning or there's an or really I might better say in our suffering we might can perhaps discover life's true meaning okay yes this is this is really the question the the, the passage in our suffering we can discover life's true meaning now Romans chapter 8 we're just reading part of it has been seen as one of the greatest chapters, when I'm talking about spiritual truths, full of promises in all of the New Testament. People would say that who are thoughtful uh, uh, students uh, or scholars of the Bible. Romans chapter 8 stands out as one of the great chapters of the New Testament. It's interesting, though, that Romans chapter 8 is essentially about suffering. It ends this way. We won't look at it, but many of you know this great doxology. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine? He ends with this great one. He says, listen, there's so many things that happen in life. To every single person at different levels at different times, hardship, just uh, persecution, famine. He goes down this long list. He goes, none of these things, it's a great promise, shall be able to separate us. It might separate you from your money. It might separate you from health. But it's not going to separate you from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. Okay, This is what this chapter is about. And in that sense, this chapter, it's mostly about suffering, Um, The application is for anybody. Anybody could find value in this chapter, could find hope in this chapter, but it's interesting that it's written to Christians. And I can only, you know, it's so hard to cover these big questions, so I have to narrow my focus. This particular passage, Romans chapter 8, is written to a Christian congregation on the subject of suffering. So, so I think it'll have something for all of us here, but it's talking to Christians, not only about the suffering in their life, but of the suffering in the world that they're trying to make sense of. The, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. Even the early Christians, whose life had changed dramatically, they had friends, they had neighbors, they had uncles, they had aunts, they had people that said, what gives, what is this faith? What, how can you make sense of this God when the world is such a mess? That's not a new problem. So Paul is trying to not only answer the question, why would a good God, loving God, allow suffering or evil in the world, but even in your life as a Christian. Now, even that alone, right? Because this, this, this series is kind of about, let's say, busting some myths or, or, or some questions that, 
uh, some, some things that are said about the Christian faith that aren't often true. This dispels one of the horrible myths, maybe always been true, but certainly in our day, that keeps many people from, I think, investigating your friends and mine that are in church today, the Christian faith. And that is, is this, that, becomes, that, that being Christianity is a personal success plan. Come to know Jesus. Your problems will go away. Your life will be a smoother. You'll, you'll have a successful kind of experience in life. I mean, this is, I mean, you don't even need to be a churchgoer if you're listening to me we, we, to, to know that this is out there in the popular media, whether it's about, you know, send in your money or send in your prayers, and God will fix your problems. Self-help Christianity. But that is not, it's, it's often called, maybe you've heard this term or not, prosperity theology or the prosperity gospel you haven't heard these terms but you've seen it it's people making promises asking for your money or your support and saying listen to be a christian means your life will go up and to the right your problems will go away let me say something about that it's crazy talk okay it's crazy someone who tells you that is either a calculated liar who maybe, just is, maybe wants your money or just is trying to build some kind of personal platform. That's not unusual. Or there's someone who's very sincere but has never bothered, honestly, to read the Bible. Back to last week's time. In other words, just, I, I can just do this in, in, in 15 seconds. Just looking at the major characters of the Bible, people that some of us know, the story of Joseph, the story of Jacob, the story of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. How about the apostles, many of them, that ended in martyrdom? In other words, these people, they came to know Christ. They came to be a part of God's kingdom. Their life went down and to the left, most of them. So this theology, you don't need to be a scholar to realize how crazy this thinking is. That's not at all what the Bible says. The Bible not only says suffering is real. This passage opens up suffering in the widest possible way. Paul's trying to make a point. He says, our sufferings, he's talking about personal sufferings, should, you know, um, we're not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. But then he opens up the lens. For the creation was subjected to frustration. The creation itself is suffering. He's going, and he uses this term, three words. He summarizes the entire fall of man in three words. The bondage of decay. Right in your margin, Genesis 3, 16 and 17. Or just Genesis 3. The bondage of decay. The consequence, this is biblical theology, of the fall of man. We call it this term, the fall of man. In Genesis chapter 3, oh my goodness, this wasn't having a bad day. The whole thing was flipped on its head. The curse of sin permeated like a yeast in a dough and completely encompassed the entire human experience. It to a place of decay, not only a place of decay, but he uses this term in verse 20. The whole creation was subject to frustration. He's saying at the heart of the human experience, because of the curse of sin, to whoever you are, at the heart of the human experience is a kind of frustration that may often lead to an anger and it touches every single person and almost everything meaningful in life. Okay, That's what he's trying to say. Now, he's talking about the fall of man. Now, does the fall, what is the fall of man? The fall of man, humanity means God's original design is broken. The pattern of life he created, okay, in the Bible, 
It's not completely eradicated. We still have, you know, people and families and, and businesses and, and churches. We, it's not been completely eradicated, but it falls short of its original intent. Think about it. I mean, you, people write books that, you know, uh, five ways to do this and seven ways to do that. But if you work hard enough at them, you see many of them come up short. Hard work should in your life, in your family, in your career, hard work should lead to a level of prosperity. But you know what? Often it doesn't. Faithfulness in relationships and commitment, committed relationships should lead to some kind of happiness. But often it doesn't. Okay? I was just reading an article recently on, on, on Elon Musk. Very, very, uh, I mean, whether you like him or not, he's a very successful man, one of the br- brightest minds in, in our day, a great engineering mind, he's done a lot, he's, he's just became, he changes from week to week or month to month, the, the richest man in the world, worth $176 billion, he's making a big difference, but this article is about his personal life, not so great. Spun through a series of marriages, has, I think, 10 kids with various women. Uh, at least one of those kids who says, who's changed his name, what's nothing to do with him? In other words, what am I, I'm not trying to knock Elon Musk, I'm just saying, nobody gets a pass, right? At the core of life, the very core is a frustration, okay? Suffering is part of life, but it's not the end of the story. There's something else here, right? Our sufferings are not worthy to be compared, now watch this, to the glory of that will be revealed, wait for it, in God, no, in us. In us. We often think of glory as a word, we sang about it, that's ascribed to God. And it is mostly ascribed to God. And the word glory actually means weight, substance. That's maybe the, the, that, that's a good uh, uh, translation. It means weight or substance. We say God is the weightiest thing in the world. God is the weightiest thing in the universe. God gets all the weight. He's more important than anything else. That's why we worship him and we don't worship ourselves and we don't worship this, that, and the other thing. God is all glory and, and we worship him. But this passage says that we too, if we share in his sufferings, I didn't read it, it's the 17th verse, we share in his sufferings, we share in his glory. And he's saying, listen, you too will have that glory revealed in you. And then this word here, it says, in e- the creation itself waits in eager expectation for the children of God, that's you and me, to be revealed. Those two words, eager expectation, is one Greek word. It's derived from the word head, kara. Now, why do I say that? Because here's the image. It's almost as if someone is straining their head. Right? And they're looking, and it's almost, think of this, you're a parent, and you're, you're waiting for your kid, his first time or her first time, on the field, on the court. And you're straining to look because you want to see them. You have this joy. Your head is waiting. In eager expectation, you want to see your kid. Or you're, you're in a room like this one or at a party or whatever, a dinner party, and the person that gets your heart going, you know they're coming to the party. And you're straining to see. Them. That's what he's saying here. He says, yes, our sufferings and glory go together, and together we will be revealed in the world. Creation is waiting for that to happen. The translation is this. Your sufferings, as unwelcome as they are, anyone that says they're a blessing in disguise, there's, there's, a, there's a silver lining in every cloud. Listen, that's baloney. That's baloney. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, listen, all of suffering is, is from the smallest to the greatest is a, is a consequence of sin and Jesus Christ is coming to end it someday. None of it's good. It can be used for good, but it's not good. 
But, it's, but you and I have an opportunity, as unwelcome as those sufferings are, as inexplicable as they are, to see them help us be used in our lives to discover a purpose, to refine us in ways that don't make sense to you and me, but they do in the providence of God. Quick story. I'm getting ready to take a team this summer back to the small country of Kosovo on a mission trip. And I lived there for a year. Some of you know that I've talked about it before. But I was going through this old notebook I have, getting ready for this meeting. And I noticed in this notebook, the very first thing, you know, it had pictures in it, some, you know, a lot of journal entries. But it was just my record of my year living there back in the year 2000. And the very first entry in this notebook, it was just so weird revisiting it, was a, a couple, a little, you know, paragraph. And it was from one of the first visits I ever had with this family. I, I eventually got to know them well. Twelve kids, I think, originally. Uh, some of them had passed away uh, before they were, when they were young. But he had at least eight kids. And the oldest one was an adult. And this woman, young adult, she shared something with me. They had this little custom in, in, in this part of the world. It's a Turkish custom. It goes back to the 16th century where you finish your coffee and they look and read your, kind of read your fortune kind of a thing. You know, it's that kind of a thing. By looking at your coffee ground. She said, can I do this? I said, Sure. You know, I was just, just getting to meet this family. This is what she said. For whatever reason, I wrote it down. That's what she said. I said, what do you see? She said, first, I see two things. First, I see that you hold a secret in your heart. Uh, I'm sorry, a secret hurt in your heart. I mean, maybe they say that to everybody. But, mm, got my attention. Okay. First, I see that you hold a secret hurt in your heart. Second, she said, I see a pair of large shoes. They have two meanings. So I wrote this down in my book. They mean that, one, you're a person with great ambitions, large shoes, and they mean you're about to go on a long journey. Now, did I make a lot of meaning out of this little custom? No. But I felt enough to write it down, maybe because it was my first visit in this, in this community. I'm sure she didn't make a lot of meaning out of it, right? She didn't know me, for, except for a couple hours. But it's interesting, in the providence of God, a year later, which seemed like a lot more than a year, when I left this long journey, how true those words were in the providence of God to my experience. Right? It just happens sometime in life. Because I did have a secret hurt in my heart. Here's what it was. She didn't know it. But I don't know if I ever said this here. But, you know, when I, when I, I was just out of seminary only four years, so full of myself, so full of big ideas, and I had a church experience. I was working at a church like this, and I left it to go on. I felt called to this mission field. And that was a genuine call, but I wasn't just that. I also wanted to leave where I was because I felt like I was a failure. And I felt like everything, I, I didn't feel like I was having the kind of success I wanted. So somehow, I did feel called and I went there and I went there with a big ambition. She was right, I was an ambitious man. And I had this ambition to do great things to, in this mission field, but also to prove something to myself and to others. But what I realized was, the mission field was exponentially harder than, than church ministry, at least the one I was doing. And within the next six months, I had more failures than I ever dreamed or ever had ever had in the four years before in my young ministry as a young man. And at the end of that six months, it was the closest I ever came to quitting. But in the next six months or so, I had to unlearn a lot of things I had to surrender all of my big ideas. And in the process of that, I learned what it meant, or at least began to learn what it meant, to truly depend on God and not on myself. And that not only changed that year in my life, it's, that has changed, that's been a lesson that has kept me in the ministry for the last 23 
years in our suffering, we can discover life's true meaning. The whole creation is waiting in eager expectation, leaning over the balcony saying, what are you going to do with your life? What's left? Right? Yes, you have sufferings, but God isn't done with you. God can do things in your suffering if you have eyes to see it. Second, in our suffering, we develop a deep faith. Verse 22, listen to these words. We know that the whole creation, again, he's opening up the the, the, the suffering to the, whole, to the natural world, has been groaning, okay? Anthropomorphism, right? He's, but he's, he's saying, listen, even the creation is groaning, right? As in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, not only is the earth itself groaning, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, that's a fancy way of saying, even those people who are Christians, you people, You don't get off the hook either. You groan inwardly, and we wait eagerly. There's the same two words again, eager expectation. For our adoption to sonship, in other words, the finishing of our salvation, the redemption of our bodies, going into heaven and having a new body. For this hope, in this hope we are saved, but the hope that is seen is no hope at all. And you're not going to see it. It's not obvious. Your life still is going to be ups and downs. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit, capital S, helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And the Spirit, excuse me, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit Because the Spirit intercedes for God's people, that's you, that's me, in accordance with the will of God. The passage paints two different realities here. The present suffering, okay, and the future glory. But the word that characterizes this moment, which goes on to the present time, Three times in this passage. You think the Bible isn't, is, 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 is superficial? You think the Bible doesn't deal head-on with things? Oh my goodness, three times in this passage. You know what the one word that characterizes life in the world that we live in? Groaning. He uses it three times. Verse 22, verse 23, and, and verse 26. Groaning. What is groaning? Well, groaning is a deep, inarticulate sound conveying pain and despair. He's saying, this, if you're honest, not many of us aren't, we'll do everything we can to distract ourselves, Christian or not, to escape from this and that, to not live in reality. But he's saying, those who have the courage to face reality, right, realize that at the core of it, there's a groaning because you know that this world is broken. You know that things don't add up. You know that the best efforts you have are often frustrated by your own stupid decisions or by many, many other people's or by life itself. It's the nature of it. There's a groaning inside. But he's saying, in response to that, God gives the greatest of his gifts, the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is God's effective power reaching out into each believer as the chief directive force in their life. Directive in this sense, not only go here, go there. Say, listen, you're going to have times, maybe more than you're willing to admit or I'm willing to admit, that you don't even know what to pray for. Everyone say, you ever in a meeting, they go, how can I pray for you? And you go, 
I don't know, you know, I don't know. You know because, because I don't know if I want God to deliver me from this or that, or maybe I just need the strength. God's saying, no, I'm not going to take this away from you. You don't need to ask, the, the prayer isn't get rid of this thing, it's give me the strength to endure. See, sometimes I don't know what to pray for. And God says, listen, that's okay, I hear that groaning. And the Spirit groans with you, verse 26, and he will search your heart, he will search your mind, and he will put words to what you cannot put words to. Let me tell you what happens to a lot of people, you and me included. I mean, I, I've been a Christian, you know, I'm, I've been around a while, okay? I've been in the ministry for 25 years, I've been a Christian since I was in high school, or I mean in college, freshman in college. And sad to say, sad to say, I know many people who once sat in a seat like this who no longer do. I'm not saying they stopped being a Christian, but they're no longer here. Why? In 99 cases out of 100, because some kind of tragedy, some kind of loss, some kind of deep disappointment happened in their life, and they said, God's not for me, God's not with me, the church has nothing to offer, I'm gone. And you and I have to make that decision in small and big ways all the time if we have a... But Paul's saying, listen, don't think for a minute that suffering's a sign of judgment. Don't think for a minute that suffering says something's wrong in your life. Don't think for a minute that this or that diagnosis means you've done something wrong. That's crazy talk. All of, the, the world is broken. It's under the bondage of decay. There's a frustration. I don't care who you are. You could be Mother Teresa, your grandmother, the greatest person you ever know. Your life is gonna, there's gonna be a frustration that mucks up many of the things that you hope are gonna happen in your life. It's the nature of life on this side of heaven. Okay, that's what he's trying to say. But, he's saying, you have a choice. You can either walk away in bitterness, which many people do, or you can make a decision. That's why I said, in your suffering, we can develop a good faith. You can make a decision to drive your roots down into God and to discover a dimension of spiritual growth and wisdom you couldn't have any other way. Okay, in a manner of speaking, that's what happened to me. And I got a long way to go, and I made a lot of mistakes, but I learned something. It was a gift. Those failures were a gift because I realized it's not about me. If I was relying on my gifts, I wouldn't get very far. And I had to say, I'm going to drive my, I'm going to trust what I don't understand. I'm going to deepen my roots right here. And God, with his spirit, and sometimes in wordless groans, reads my mind, reads my heart, answers my prayer, and sends me his power into my life. And says, trust me. You're not going to understand. There's so much you don't understand. We don't even have time to talk about, Rob, the things that you don't understand. Let me say this. Romans 5, 1 through 5. says, you've heard this passage before. Same writer, same book. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel, through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that our sufferings, this is in this life, produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given us. Okay, that's what he's talking about. Let me say this. So much I could say. We, I, I, I would be a fool to stand up here in front of you, thoughtful, 
uh, uh, wise, educated people and say, let me give you the answer. Let me give you the final answer that no one's been able to give of why God allows suffering to happen in life. I can't give you that answer. Why he continues to allow things to happen that I don't fully appreciate or understand in my life, but in the lives of others and in this world. But at least we know what the reason is not. It cannot be because he doesn't love us. Right? That's what that thing says. The fact that God sent his son into the world to die on the cross for your sin. He became sin for us who knew no sin. He went as far as he could go. At the very least, I know this. That he loves me. That he loves you. And Paul's saying, listen, hold on to that in the face of your unanswered questions. Tim Keller. Suffering is the very heart of the Christian faith. Right? Think about it. It is not only the way Christ became like us. Right? He walked into the world and became a human being. He's God the Son. But one of the main ways we become like Him and experience His redemption. Suffering and glory go hand in hand. Do not consider whether the present sufferings could be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. As they were part and parcel in the life of Jesus, they are in your life and my life too. Doesn't mean God sends you the suffering. Doesn't mean God sends you the bad things. Life is broken. Bad things and difficult things are coming your way every single day. It's the nature of a broken world. But God says, listen, I'm not, ultimately, I'm going to give you a new body and a new life. This is where this is headed. But even in this life, you have access to a spirit that can, be, that can bring hope, it can bring healing, that can even bring power and purpose in your life while you're walking through this broken world. Okay? In our suffering, we discover life's true meaning. In our suffering, we can develop a deep faith. Finally, in our suffering, we learn to worship God for who He is. It's a whole sermon in itself, but Romans 8.28 is one of the most misunderstood verses in all the Bible. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. One of the main reasons many people, my friends, your friends, don't come to investigate Christian faith is because of a misunderstanding of that verse. Right? It does not say all things are good. Right? That's not what the verse says. And the larger passage says the exact opposite. The world's going in a different direction. The law of entropy is happening not only in the natural world, it's happening in my life. Things are coming apart. The center does not hold. Right? That's life. Because of the bondage of decay. That's a, that's a, that's a reflection of true reality. And nobody escapes it. Okay? This passage doesn't say that all things are good, that, you know, this suffering is a blessing from God, that's baloney. That's not true. That's hurt people. Maybe you. What it does say is that in all things, even hard things, even great disappointing things, even in very painful things, in all things, God is working toward our supreme good in ways that you and I can't imagine. 
Nothing is beyond the overruling, overriding scope of his providence. Now that's something you've got to take by faith. That's saying, listen, you can't see everything that's going on. You know, uh, there, there's more in, going on in heaven and earth than meet your philosophy, Hamlet says to his friend. Listen, that's true. Do you have any idea? I mean, how could you think about you and I talking to your three-year-old kid or your four-year-old kid or even your 14-year-old kid about the things that they don't understand about this little life? Multiply that times a thousand when it comes to what God knows and what you know about life. Okay? Of course you can't know everything. But what this passage is saying is the person who does know everything, who does see everything, the end from the beginning, who knows what you need and who doesn't send you the disease or the trouble, but he says, I'm smart enough and powerful enough that I can use it to do something meaningful in your life if you're willing to trust me. All things work together for the good to those who love him. That means I'm trusting him and are called according to his purpose. Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you know her, some of you don't. One of the great missionaries of the 20th century. Young mom, 1956, she and four of her lady friends, all young moms, they said goodbye to their husbands on, on a Monday, and they all were speared to death in Ecuador. And people came to her and said, make sense of this. Does this mean, quid pro quo, that four, all these five men died and 500 people are going to become believers? Make sense of this for us. She said, no, that's not what it means. How could I possibly know? But she said this. Oh, this is part of a, long, a book, really. But if God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. I have no idea what God is doing. This is a horrible tragedy. It's the last worst horrible thing that's happened in my life. But let me just tell you that one person, some of you know her, some of you don't. She decided, she could have said right then, I'm done. God, I've given my whole life to you. I'm 28 years old. I have a young daughter. I've said no to, a, to a many, many things and I've come here to this other part of the world to try to reach people that don't know you and this is what I get. I'm sure she had those moments. But she decided somewhere in there to trust God, deepen her roots in the providence of God, trust him anyway, not for who she wanted him to be, who she thought him to be, but for who he is. A God who is all-powerful, is all-loving, and knows what he's doing, and he can use even the worst things in life to bring about good. And she spent the next, she just died 10 years ago, 50 years of her life doing things that only heaven knows the things that she has done with her life. Last journal entry. The last thing I wrote, um, I'm not a great journaler, so I stopped, you know, but it was the last writing in this journal was a story, is a story about the woman I just told you. Listen carefully. Of Issa's 12 children, that was her father's name, several had died before the war, he had 12 children, Shkerta, that's the woman's name, suffered the most over the last year, that is the year of 2019, or 1999 to 2000. During NATO's bombing campaign that precipitated attack on this village and finally ended the war, she experienced a unique suffering of her own. After many visits, 
she opened up and shared it with us. She told us, this is out of my journal, of how the days leading up to the ambush, these villages, the war in Yugoslavia, with bombs dropping all around, she was the only woman who was not removed with the children in hiding. She had stayed behind to care for the men who remained. Each day the bombing seemed to come becoming closer and closer, and in the end, before it stopped, a terrible horror had taken place all around her. Her father, along with her many uncles and cousins, most of whom were killed, were taken to one of three homes in this village, which became a killing field. Homes where men were grouped, robbed, beaten, shot, and set on fire. Her father was shot but not fatally wounded. As the flames around him roared, he escaped into the grass for five hours until he was rescued. Seriously wounded, in and out of consciousness, he awoke to the sounds of Shkurta's voice. On a visit not long after this uh, visit, when she told that story, she asked me, near the end of my time, if I'd ever read the book of Job and what I thought of it. We had never mentioned it or discussed it, but I had a good sense now of what drew her to the book. We read it together, and soon she began coming to our Saturday evening services. At a recent service, we had these prayer services, in July, we had people sit in groups, read a Bible story, and answer questions. Shkurta worked the hardest and was open and eager to share her answers when she was done. To the first question, quote, what word would you give yourself now? You know, we've been in this study for a while. Lonely, sad, happy, without hope. She replied, lonely and without hope. But with the help of another and a word from God, I feel happy. To the last question, quote, do you feel at this time Jesus is changing your life? She said, I think yes. Impressed me. If there was ever anybody, right? This is a woman who wasn't a woman of faith. That wasn't her backstory. Who had a reason to say, why would I worship a God who's caused so much trouble in the world and in my life? It was her. But somehow, some way, that's beyond my understanding. Everyone's story is different. She was able to look past those things and see a God who loved her and was going to do a work in her life. If that could be true for her, it should be true for you. And it should be true for me. So no, Pastor, can you answer the question, why does God allow so much suffering? I can't fully answer that question. I'm not God. But what I can say is, what this book says, listen, what your life says, if you really think about it, but other people you know, is that you can choose, even in your lack of understanding, even in your deep questions, even in your um, inexplicable um, response to sufferings, that God loves you and that he wants to do something through your sufferings, if you'll let him. Amen? Let's pray. God and Father, I thank you for this day, for my friends in this room, and Lord, uh, I just pray for all of us here this morning as we try to make sense of Lord, the, the things that you are doing in, in, in our lives and in this world. Help us, God, to cling tightly to you. Help us even at times when we don't know what to say or what to pray. To remember that you love us. That you demonstrated your love in the greatest of ways. Help us to root our lives in you. And to trust you, God, to give us strength 
and to say the words that we can't say, to pray the prayers that we can't pray, that we might become the people you want us to become, even in this broken world. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great Sunday.